For some weeks we've been studying 2 Thessalonians and particularly what it shows us about the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's fundamental to Christianity that we, we all understand if we've studied the word carefully that we see it in the gospel accounts the Lord Jesus came to the earth first and foremost to take on the weight of sin and bear the sins of humanity on himself when he gave himself on the cross. It's recorded in the Gospels, that's the first coming of Christ where on the cross he actually took the wrath of God in our place if we would believe. But also fundamental to Christianity is the truth that after his death and his resurrection and his ascension, there is coming a time when the Lord Jesus Christ will return to the earth. In his first coming, he took the wrath of God on himself on the cross as a substitute for those who believe, but when he comes again, it will be the culmination of the wrath of God on those who refuse to believe. And that's what we've been looking at. Jesus will return. He is coming. This morning, the single verse we're going to look at describes the safety of our salvation from God's coming season of wrath that will culminate the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't intend to talk about the security of our salvation, meaning That truth that is certainly true, that fact that once you are a genuine Christian, salvation is secure, you cannot lose it. That's a wonderful, glorious truth that we we hold to and we believe. That's not what I want to talk about, not the security of your salvation. What I want to talk about is the safety of your salvation. The safety of our salvation from, from what does salvation keep us safe? Well, certainly we know that salvation protects us from the schemes of the devil to keep us from falling into unbelief. We know that salvation protects us from the ultimate plot of sin inside of us that's seeking to destroy us. We know that salvation protects us from the natural sinful bent of our soul that actually would consume us if left to itself. But from what does our salvation actually protect us when it comes to God? You say, well, I'm not sure I've ever thought about salvation protecting me from God. But God is opposed to sin, isn't he? God is opposed to the unrighteousness that lives in our heart. God is opposed to unbelief. He is the enemy of sin. And sin resides in us. It is fundamental to our understanding of salvation that salvation actually is our safety from the wrath of God. How many Christians wonder as they wrestle with what seems to be unconquerable sinful tendencies and issues and they say to themselves, will I because I keep falling into this sin, am I going to face the wrath of God intended for those who don't believe? That is a regular conversation I have with a number of people who profess faith in Christ who are struggling with sin. How much more would you wonder about that if you had been told by a reputable source claiming to represent apostolic authority 
and speak on the behalf of the Holy Spirit that the suffering that you're enduring now is actually the display of the wrath of God? What would you begin to think about yourself and your spiritual condition before the Lord? What would you think about your salvation? What would you think about God and his purposes for his people? If suffering that you're going through in, in the here and the now, if you realize, if you thought this was the expression of God's wrath, you might begin to wonder, then why, if I'm a believer, am I in the wrath of God? Would you struggle with maintaining drive and purposefulness to live for the honor of God if you thought that you were caught in the inescapable grasp of God's final wrath? Wouldn't you be tempted to quit and just give up? These are actually the issues that are going on in the Thessalonian church in the first century that Paul is addressing. They've been told their suffering is an expression of the wrath of God. They've been falsely told that. You remember in chapter 2, verse 2, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord According to the Bible, it's a a phrase that's used across the Old Testament, and here we see it again in the New. The day of the Lord, from what we learn about it, is a short but final expression of God's wrath upon the unbelieving world. The objects of the day of the Lord are unbelievers, non-Christians. If you were in the day of the Lord... If we as a church together were in the day of the Lord, we would wonder, what does this say about us? For the Thessalonians, it was troubling, probably more than troubling, it was faith-shaking. They were quickly shaken. They were being agitated. That's the language used there. Now, listen, if they had been taught originally that they would go through the day of the Lord and God would just protect them in the day of his wrath and they would just walk through that, but God would protect them, they would not be shaken because they would know that's what the Bible says. But evidently, that's not what's going on here. They are shaken because this doesn't seem to fit with what they had been taught, that they would not be under the day and the season of the wrath of God. So Paul writes to keep them from misinterpreting their present circumstances in light of what he had actually and clearly taught them about the events of the future. Now we've been walking through four different parts of this chapter that should help to bring some clarity about the future in order to gain some stability in our present difficulties. We're going to go through affliction. We're going to go through hard times. That's for sure. Those hard times, those afflictions that we go through right now, according to what the Bible says in this era, is not the expression of the wrath of God toward us. That day is coming. So in the first two verses, Paul delineates different phases of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of the Lord involves a number of different phases. The gathering together to him, it encompasses the day of the Lord, which is that short period of expression of God's wrath, and the day of the Lord then culminates with the appearing of Christ when he returns to the earth and establish and essentially completes his kingdom that he's begun. He completes it on the earth. 
Verse 8 refers to that appearance. In verses 3 through 12 of chapter 2, Paul provides clarity about the evidence on whether the day of the Lord had actually come. How do you know if you are or if you are not in the day of God's wrath? Well, if someone had taught us, it seems to be that the gathering that's referred to in verse 1 either had already happened or had not happened. It will happen sometime perhaps in the end. If, if that has happened, if the gathering has already happened and we're in the day of the Lord, then what does that say about us? And Paul says, well, you're not in the day of the Lord. And here's some evidences. What are those evidences? Just to review them. The apostasy must come first, and that apostasy is essentially some worldwide rejection of the things of Christ. It's specific, and it, and it is encompassing of the entire globe. Secondly, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. The man of lawlessness, or what we often and stereotypically refer to him as is the Antichrist. The Apostle John is the only one to refer to the man of lawlessness as the Antichrist, but it is appropriate here. Here he's defined as the man of lawlessness. He'll be revealed, and when he is revealed, the world will know it. It will be obvious, it'll be clear, and you'll know that you're in the day of the Lord. And if that hasn't happened yet, you are not in the day of the Lord. We know he'll come with that worldwide apostasy, he is a man who by very definition is defined in his actions and lifestyle as disobedience to God and he is the one who will be ultimately destroyed by God when Christ appears. He's presently being restrained by an intentional activity of God as lawlessness grows and develops and prepares for this man's unveiling but in the right time he will be unveiled and unleashed on the earth. He will deceive people through supernatural satanic deceptions as we saw last time. And virtually everyone on the planet will believe in these deceptions. The Lord in his judgment will actually take those people who choose to live for their pleasure rather than the love of God and he will give them over in his judgment to a delusioned spirit to believe everything that this man of lawlessness says. That's the day of the Lord. That's how you know you're in the day of the Lord. And none of that was happening in the, the life of the Thessalonians. That was not the scene for them. It's not the scene for us even now. We don't see those things taking place. So they, and we should know that there and our present circumstances, this is not the era of God's wrath. There's another reason why they should not think that their present was the future wrath of God. There's another reason why we should look at what's going on around us and not think this is the wrath of God. And it has to do with the safety of our salvation. It's found in verses 13 to 15. <clears throat> so we'll begin it today, we'll conclude it next week Lord willing their salvation our salvation will preclude us from being in the season defined by the wrath of God the day of the Lord it's important that we see this here in this passage 
verse 13 is not a radical change in the subject matter. It's not a different subject that we're moving on to apart from the coming of the Lord. Not at all. It's another reason why they're not in the day of the Lord because your salvation keeps you safe. Paul uses a slight change here in the word but, verse 13, but, but he uses it as a slight contrast. You see that in verses 3 through 12. Here's what's going on in the day of the Lord, the apostasy, the man of lawlessness, and all that comes along with that. But in contrast to that day, but we should give thanks to God for you because he's not chosen you for wrath, he's chosen you for salvation. You're not under wrath, you're in the era of salvation. Not the era of his judgment, but the era of his saving grace. Remember, the gathering will rescue those in Christ from entering the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath, and the gathering to the Lord will be the event that actually launches the day of the Lord, the day of God's wrath. And then we will return with the Lord after his wrath has been poured out and he finalizes his judgment by setting up his rule and completing his kingdom on the earth. That's the same trajectory that we saw in 1 Thessalonians Paul begins with a description of the gathering of believers to the Lord in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. He then pivots in chapter 5 to give attention to what he describes there as the day of the Lord. And he even said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief for you are all sons of the light, sons of the day. We are not of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us be alert and sober. Since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He's essentially said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 that he's saying here, be awake, be alert, live like Christians because you're not destined for the day of God's wrath. You have the hope of salvation to guard you and protect you. Now, I know that there are some who might ask and may even state that as they read through, say, the book of Revelation in the period from chapter 6 down to chapter 19, that typically is described as events related to the day of affliction and the day of the Lord and the day of God's wrath, the timing of his wrath, or Matthew 24 that describes it, or Mark 13 or Luke 21, in those sections they seem to indicate that there are believers during that time that's described as God's wrath. How are we to make account for that? Well, I do think that there will be some who do come to faith in Jesus during those days. The book of Revelation indicates that most of them will be martyred for their faith by those who are chafing under the painful outpouring of God's wrath, and they're called to endure. My understanding on their presence in such days is that they are saved, and there will likely be few of them despite those days. They are never referred to as the church, but merely with the general title of saints who exist during that time. The church appears to have no organizational resistance to evil during those days of wrath. 
And the saints who do come to faith during those days are all violently pursued by the man of lawlessness to be eradicated. But the church as we understand it now does not appear to be present during the days of God's wrath. Also, all that the New Testament tells the church about general affliction that we will endure is just that. It's instruction about general affliction, suffering and affliction from a variety of sources. Listen, the day of the Lord is categorically different from days that we're walking through now of affliction. It is a different era when the Lord himself attacks the earth. That is a different season than when we simply go through suffering in this world. The day of the Lord is God's unleashing of intentional attack on the unbelieving world. And it will happen to such a degree as has never happened in human history and never will be repeated to that degree again. There There will be nothing like it. But for us, on this side of the day of the Lord, Our salvation is the safety we enjoy from not entering into that day. Our salvation is our safety from the wrath of God. That's the theme of verses 13 to 15. So what effect does our salvation safety from God have on us? What effect does it have? Let me unpack that for us. We'll just look at four of six effects this morning we'll complete it next lord's day there's a lot in verse 13 it's mother's day i thought one verse one short sermon should do fine (laughs) 15 minute introduction or so should help i just want us to dwell a little bit on this there's a lot of rich biblical truth here because when you think of the wrath of god And you think of your salvation, you should think secure in Christ, safe in Christ. What effect does the security of our salvation, the safety of our salvation from the wrath of God, what effect does it have? First, should be obvious, salvation's safety produces gratitude. It produces gratitude to God. Paul says, but in contrast to those who are going to be in the wrath of God, we should always give thanks to God for you. We should give thanks to God for you. Now, let's unpack this just a little bit. What does this gratitude consist of? What what does it look like? Every choice of every word is explosive with theological meaning here, practical impact. First, I want you to see that gratitude because of the safety in our salvation is necessary. Do you see the word we should? That's the New American Standard. It is the word of phalo in Greek and it actually means we are obligated. We are obligated to give thanks. It's necessary. There's a sense of divine oughtness to Paul's expression of gratitude for this church. 
It's almost verbatim to what he says back in chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. It's the same language. There he was grateful for their continued growth in the faith and love of the brethren. And now he's resuming what he began in, that letter, in this letter all the way at the beginning. He's, he's like picking it up again to say, we, we ought always. It's obligated for us to be thankful to God for you. In chapter one, God, God will eventually vindicate you, so keep growing. We're thankful for you. God will vindicate you. Keep growing. We're thankful for that reality. And in chapter two, your salvation is actually your salvation. Your salvation is safety from the day of the Lord. And we're so grateful that we see that in you. Salvation obliges gratitude. It's not from you. You did not save yourself. God saved you. Have you ever noticed when you talk to people about their salvation, you never ask them, so when did you achieve salvation for yourself? When did you rescue yourself from the the wrath of God? How did you accomplish that? How did you keep yourself from going to hell? Oh, well, my righteous actions, as righteous as God's are, they kept me from that. I, I just don't hear that kind of language, do you? No, when we think about the reality of our salvation and that God achieved it, it dissolves pride into gratitude, doesn't it? It's humbling. You remember what Paul said about the confidence he had in the salvation of this church? Back in 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, listen to the description of these Christians. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, which is their surrounding region and the region to the south, But also in every place, your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. When Paul thought about these Saints, and he thought about their salvation. We thought about this church and he knew all that had gone on in them. Their testimony was so clear that every time he thought about them, he's grateful for them. When the evidence of true salvation is present, the response to suffering is not to fear that you're under the wrath of God. When you see true faith, you don't wonder, am I under God's wrath? You don't wonder that. You're grateful for God's saving presence. This is a response that's a virtual obligation. You ever feel that sense of obligation? It's not wrong to feel obligated to give thanks to God for salvation. There should be something compelling about your salvation that drives you to say, thank you, God. Even more, When you're encountering other believers, 
who are walking through challenging seasons and they might be wondering, does God hate me? I've heard Christians say that. Does God hate me? Is he so displeased with me that he's just pouring out his anger on me? Sometimes it's helpful for an outside source not to look at them and just give them the exhortation of buck up and get over this. But rather to say to them, oh, I I thank God for clear salvation testimony and evidence in your life. This isn't the wrath of God. This is his salvation. Gratitude is also consistent when we think about salvation's safety. Our gratitude is consistent. Paul says, as he says so many times, he is always thankful. Now, again, Paul is the master of redundancy. He uses the present tense verb, give thanks, which means in Greek, present tense doesn't mean now, present tense means constantly, habitually. I'm habitually giving thanks. And then he adds another word always to that. I'm always habitually thanking God for you and your salvation. In case you were wondering, every single time I think of you, I thank God for you. This is common in Paul, 1 Thessalonians 1-2. We give thanks to God always for you. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this reason we also constantly thank God. This is not some kind of insincere redundancy either. This is not Paul looking at afflicted people as if he's some required cheerleader with his pom-poms trying to cheer on the losing team. It's not what he's doing. He's deeply, sincerely, constantly thankful for them. He didn't allow his, he didn't allow their circumstances to hinder the consistency in his gratitude. You also notice here that gratitude is God-centered. We are obligated to constantly give habitual thanks to God for you. You ever notice around Thanksgiving season how the unbelieving world gives thanks to no one? They're so thankful. To whom? Well, the secular world doesn't know what to add to that. That's not what Paul is here. He's, he's very obvious, God-centered. His gratitude over salvation and the safety it supplies over God's wrath, it's not a platitude. It's gratitude in the light of reality, the reality of what God's wrath is, the knowledge that we all deserve that wrath, the understanding of the immensity of what Jesus accomplished in taking God's wrath on himself on the cross and that God by sheer grace, not because anyone earned it or deserved it, he applied divine forgiveness to those who were his spiritual enemies. That's the activity of God to which Paul is deeply grateful. This gratitude is also personal. We should give thanks to God for you, brethren. In fact, in the original text, we 
is emphatic. It's at the very beginning. It's added to the verb that already says we are giving thanks. We ourselves, we know you. We were with you when you believed. We saw the testimony. We see the fruit. And we're thankful for you as if you were our very family. There's no insincere formality in this gratitude. He's not just trying to give some empty, hey, let me just cheer you on. No, this is deep, personal, Godward gratitude over the richness of salvation that keeps you from the wrath of God. I also want to show you something else here. This gratitude is Christ-centered too. Do you see that? We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, and he adds this phrase, beloved by the Lord. If there's no salvation, we don't have this love of Christ. Where salvation is present is the presence of the love of Jesus. Now it's interesting here that he says you are the beloved of the Lord. Not merely you're loved by God, which is typical in Paul to, to talk about being loved by God as if God the Father is, is the source of that love. But here it's critical. And why would this be so critical? It's critical because of the context. Who is coming back to judge the earth in wrath? Or verse, verse eight, who is going to slay the man of lawlessness when he returns? The Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming in the day of the Lord in wrath, but you are different. You are beloved by the Lord. You are not associated with the coming of the day of the Lord in wrath. You are associated with Christ and his love. You are associated with the first advent of Christ when he bore the wrath of God in his body on your behalf. Not associated with the Lord and his wrath when he returns. You're beloved by the Lord Jesus Christ. When Paul thinks about the safety of salvation from the wrath of God, he always thinks about Jesus. And you do understand this, don't you? Jesus either bears God's wrath for you on the cross or you will face his wrath when he returns. One or the other. This is the era of salvation. There is coming a season of wrath. And when he saves us, what do we have to look forward to? A world of wrath that we have to endure? No. Paul says the Lord will gather his people to himself and they will always be with the Lord. He says he will present us to the Father complete, finished. When we return with him, we return with him in white robes as if completely cleansed of all sin and stain to be with him when he rules in his kingdom. We're beloved by the Lord. Everything about your salvation says God loves you in Christ. We'll have eternal fellowship with him. We're not gonna have to endure his wrath 
We're going to enjoy the fruit of salvation. What an encouragement this would be just to hear this phrase. Wave after wave of biblical glory is found in every phrase of Paul's opening statement of gratitude. If you aren't brought to absolute gratitude when you think of the safety that comes from your salvation, then I wonder if you really understand God, wrath, judgment, salvation itself. It's stunning. And have you ever noticed the only things that we're deeply grateful for are those things that we're most amazed by? The deeper your amazement in what God does for you in salvation will elevate, skyrocket your gratitude to God. It is worth you staring at and thinking about and loving the diamond of our salvation and considering every cut and facet of it because it just expands and heightens your gratitude to God. You'll never worry about condemnation if you thoroughly understand what comes in salvation. That's one effect. Salvation safety, it produces gratitude, a really profound kind of gratitude. There's a second effect of salvation safety from God's wrath that should settle our hearts. Found in this verse, Let's think on this one. Salvation safety is determined by God. It's determined by God. Here's that phrase. We are obligated to give thanks to God for you, brethren, who are beloved by the Lord. Why? Why such gratitude? Because God chose you. He's chosen you. From the beginning for what? Salvation. Why is this a debate? Why is this a debate? Why do Christians struggle with this? Does this not say God chose you for salvation? Do we really want to argue with this? Do we really want to say no? That cannot be. I chose God for salvation. You say, no, wait a minute. I, I hear what you're saying. I even feel the weight of that. But I did make a decision. I did come to my senses. I did read the Bible, I did see my need, and I did willingly choose to follow the Lord. So there's a real sense in which I did choose God. I'm not going to argue with that. You did. If you came to Christ, he did not drag you in kicking and screaming with you saying, no, I will not be saved. And he says, yes, you will, and you'll like it. He didn't do that. When you came, you came willingly and you loved him. And I just want to say, why did you come that way? Because he chose you for salvation. He chose you, literally the, the text reads, into salvation. 
No one is fundamentally saved because of their choice before they were saved by God's choice. All who choose to believe do so because God has first chosen. All who choose to love him do so because God has first chosen to love them, 1 John 4. That's the universal testimony of the Bible. Jesus said to the 12 in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And you say, well, that's to apostleship. Okay. Okay, I'm fine with that. You did not choose me. Did they not choose to walk with him and follow him? Yes, you did not choose me. The reason why you are following me is because I chose you. Romans 8.33, who will bring a, a charge against God's chosen? God is the one who justifies. Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Colossians 3.12, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice of you. That's just a mere sampling. I deleted at least 20 other verses. Really, this morning, I thought, no, I can't give you all those. I've already done it once before, so you have to go back and listen to that one. Now, there is something interesting about his word choice here. Paul uses a completely different word here for God choosing than he typically uses when he describes the eternally electing choice of God. In fact, this word that he uses here for choice is used only three times in the entirety of the New Testament. Why? I think he means this to be very personal. I'm choosing you like a choice fruit from the tree. You are choice, you are chosen. And he wants to contrast this to those that he describes in verses 10 and 11. You remember verse 10? This man of lawlessness comes with all the deceptivity of Satan in wickedness for those who are perishing because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send on them a deluding influence so they will believe what is false. Those in that day will receive the judgment of God, but you are choice. You have been chosen not to receive the deluding influence, but to be in the salvation of God. Not in the wrath of God, but in salvation. You're chosen of God. He specifically selected you to know his salvation, not his wrath. And just keep in mind, there is not anything in us that would shine bright enough to catch the saving eye of God in comparison to someone else. He didn't choose you because you just looked better than these others. You do understand if left to yourself, you would be under the deluding influence of the man of lawlessness when he comes. You will follow his devices. You will be under the wrath of God. His choice is by his grace alone. And grace by definition is a mercy shown despite what should be given to the contrary. We deserve the day of the Lord but he gives us the era of salvation. 
What kind of safety is that? What better can you get? What better safety can you get? Nothing can thwart the sovereign choice of God. If you're chosen, you could not be safer from his wrath. God doesn't make mistakes. He's not blinded. He's not hoodwinked. It's not like he can't, he can't see what's really... He chooses and he chooses rightly. And who he chooses is saved. You do understand all who are chosen are saved. It's not like he chose some and they said, nah, I'm not going to. What a profound stabilizing truth. How safe are you? Look at the effect of the safety of, of God's salvation. He determined your salvation. He determined it. So the third effect of salvation and its safety that we need to look at here. Third, salvation safety anticipates the abundance of God. It anticipates the abundance of God. Now, where do I get that? Well, to, to show you that accurately, let, we, we've got we've to do a little bit of hard work here. Notice the phrase in verse 13. I'm, I'm reading out of the New American Standard. If you have the English Standard Version, you're going to see something a little bit different. It says, God has chosen you. In the New American Standard, it says, from the beginning. And it has a little footnote, if you have a, a good Bible with you that shows the notes. It has a note there. And the note says, or it could read first fruits. Now, if you're reading the English Standard Version, you'll, say, you'll see it says, God has chosen you as first fruits. So is it that God has chosen us from the beginning, or has God chosen us as first fruits? How did we get to that? Well, the New American Standard is choosing a reading of two Greek words. Those two Greek words are up. Arche, up from, preposition from, arche, which sometimes, though never really by Paul, is translated as beginning, up, arche. Or the ESV and many other translations translate it first fruits, which is the one word, aparche. Is it to be two, a preposition with another term, or one word? And the fascinating thing is when you examine all of the ancient Greek manuscripts and you study those who have put all that together and you look into your Greek apparatus, you have that in front of you this morning, the little footnotes at the bottom that show you all the comparison of the Greek texts, you're going to find if you, if you look into that, that there's good arguments for both. There's good arguments for both. So some like the New American Standard, have chosen the phrase from the beginning because it seems to fit what the verse indicates about the sovereign choice of God. He has chosen us from the beginning and that fits with other theological statements we find like in Ephesians 1.4, he has chosen you from the beginning. Though that phrase in Ephesians 1.4 is completely different when it says from the beginning than this phrase. This is, it's not the same. And so those who choose from the beginning, they do so because they say, well, it's, it's kind of difficult to know if this meant first fruits, it's difficult to know what Paul means by first fruits. Sometimes he uses that word first fruits to say you're the first ones to believe in this area, but the Thessalonians were not the first people to believe in this area. So it, it can't mean first fruits in that sense. So, so they just say, well, we're gonna go with from the beginning because that fits other places theologically. And, and there's good reason for that. 
But I think that the evidence for first fruits being the right rendering is a little bit stronger, stronger in the manuscript evidence. And the word arche, that is sometimes translated, it is here as from the beginning, it's never used by Paul ever to describe the timing of God's choice. It never describes the timing of God's choice. In fact, most of the time, RK refers to a ruler, not timing. Further, this is another reason why I think Paul chose a different word for chosen than he normally uses because he wants a different picture in our head than just chosen from the beginning. He wants a different picture. He picked you as first fruits. What would this mean, first fruits? First fruits is an Old Testament term. It's taken from places like Exodus 23, 19, Numbers 15, 17 to 21, Deuteronomy 12. It describes, this is interesting, especially with this context, it describes an offering of gratitude from people at the harvest time. If you harvest, you take the first part of what you harvest and you offer it up as an offering of gratitude. Now, gratitude fits this context, doesn't it? With Paul saying how grateful he is for them. First fruits is an offering of gratitude, saying God has provided. And what he has provided is the sign that more will be provided. That the harvest has begun, yet more is coming. We're in the era, in other words, we've reached the era of harvest, the era of inbringing, and we give thanks to God for that. You say, well, what would that mean here in this context when we're talking about the day of the Lord? Well, what was it that was shaking the Thessalonians? They thought they were in the era of wrath. And Paul is saying, no, you're in the era of gratitude, of ingathering, first fruits, salvation, with more to come. In fact, they were experiencing that. They were saved and more were coming to faith in Jesus Christ in that time. You are in the era of salvation, which is the first fruits that says more are coming. You're not in the era that's defined by the wrath of God, which is final. Or we could say it this way. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.2, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You do understand that. We live in the era of God's program, of God's timing, when it's defined by salvation, not wrath. Defined by salvation, not wrath. There's coming a time that will be defined by wrath and not salvation. Now, if we're in the era of salvation right now and those who are coming to faith in Christ are like God's choice first fruits that are predicting more to come, does that mean that we never see God's wrath at all? No, we do see expressions of God's wrath, but this is not the era defined by God's wrath, is it? This is the era defined by salvation. We are pleading with you to come to faith in Christ. This is the era 
of the Spirit who generates the work of salvation in our hearts. There's coming an era that will be defined differently that is the era of God's wrath. That doesn't mean that there won't be some who are saved, but that era won't be defined by salvation. It'll be defined by wrath. So Paul is saying, you're, you're not people chosen for the wrath of God like those I just talked about in the previous chapter. You're, you're people who are like first fruits into salvation, the era of harvest, of which I'm so grateful. Well, when does that era of salvation end? When the day of the Lord arrives. When the apostasy happens and the man of lawlessness has come, you are entering into the day of the Lord. And until that day begins, we are in the day of salvation, the era of salvation. That's what this present time is. Well, that's that's hopeful. That's safe. That should create stability in us. God didn't choose you for the time of wrath. He chose you for the time of salvation. And you should think on that. And that should bring you to great, great gratitude. Let's look at the fourth and the final effect of salvation safety from God's wrath that should settle our hearts. Fourth. Salvation safety is accomplished by the means of God. This is really interesting to me. I hope it is to you. I loved it. Salvation safety is accomplished by the means of God. And I say the means of God because of the specific phrase that's used here. God has chosen you as first fruits for salvation through, watch this, through, or literally we could say by, by sanctification, by the spirit and faith in the truth. What are the tools that God uses to bring you into salvation? Now, I think these tools, these means by which God chooses to make you into a first fruits offering unto salvation leads me to believe that what Paul has in mind when he mentions salvation here is not initial salvation when you come to faith, but final salvation when you finish your faith and you are with him in glory. How does he bring you into that? And you you do understand. We understand that. We we think of initial salvation when we believe, or sometimes we call that by the theological term justification. And we, we know that we're going through life and we're within salvation and we're growing within that salvation. We call that many times sanctification or progressive sanctification. And the ultimate aspect of salvation, final salvation, when we enter into eternal life with the Lord after his return. And the scripture speaks this way all the time. Scripture can speak of salvation as initial belief and that involves the theological ideas of regeneration. You know what regeneration is? It's when you were dead in your trespasses and sins 
and he caused you to be born again. You don't make yourself born again. He caused you to be born again. So your eyes were enlivened and you saw the Lord. The scales were pulled away from your eyes, 2 Corinthians 4. And you saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation in him. That's regeneration, which leads then to the theological idea of conversion, where you then embrace him by turning away from your sin, repentance, and believing in him. Because he's opened your eyes, you are converted And you are justified before God at that moment. You didn't do anything to justify yourself. The righteousness of Jesus on the cross was then applied to you as if you had all the righteousness of Jesus. But you know, in that initial belief, in your practice, in your day-to-day life, you don't have, you're not seeing all the righteousness of Jesus, are you? If you are, you see me afterward because I'm pretty sure you're not. And I bet there's family members who could point some out or coworkers. So you're, you're good, but you're not that good. But you're treated as if you have all the righteousness of Christ. So we're living within salvation right now, progressive sanctification, where we're growing into that salvation and more and more we're becoming like Christ. But all of that leads us up to what Paul refers to as ultimate salvation when we're ultimately saved and that's when the whole process is complete and our practice looks just like our justification. We do look like the Lord. Our, we're complete in the image of Christ. We look like who he's made us to be. When does that happen? When he presents us to the Father complete in Christ in heaven. Final salvation. The Bible talks about us as having been saved. The Bible talks about us as being saved. The Bible talks about us as we will be saved. All three, all three of those. Here in this text, he's likely referring to final salvation. He chose you to enter into ultimate salvation. How? How do you get there? In the day-to-day, how do you get there? There's two means that he points out. One is holiness from the Spirit. Holiness from the Spirit brings you into ultimate salvation, not ultimate wrath. That's in the phrase sanctification by the Spirit or holiness. What is holiness? Just the simple definition. Holiness refers to your devotion to God. Your devotion to God. When you're devoted to God, every crevice of your life is lived for his purposes. That's holiness. It's devoted to him. It's not common. It's not shared with something common. No, it's completely devoted. What generates holiness? According to this, holiness comes from the Holy Spirit from the spirit this is holiness that comes from the spirit that actually brings you into final salvation as hebrews 12 14 says without this kind of holiness no one will see the lord do you understand that's what's happening when we gather together on the lord's day and we hear the word and we respond to it 
When we're reading the word personally or in conversation with others and we're helping each other grow and we're confronting sin and challenging it and helping people forsake it and walking with people and praying with one another, what are we doing? We're seeing the work of the Spirit. It's not our work that's being done, though we're involved in it. The Spirit is producing devotion to God and that devotion is preparing you for final salvation. And if you don't have that, if you do not pursue that, you will not see such salvation. It's fascinating to listen to Christians talk about, oh, I'm saved, I believed, I confessed my sins, I was baptized, I joined the church, but I have nothing to do with Christ. I have nothing to do with the Lord. I have nothing to do with the word. I don't want anything really to do with other Christians in my life. And I say, I'm not sure you truly were initially saved. Because that brings you into a place where you're pursuing salvation unto final salvation. You can't just have one of those three. If you have one, you have all three. You have, if you have been saved, you are being saved and you will be saved. All three are true of you. They're guaranteed. This is the work of killing sin, growing in Christ's likeness. That is holiness from the Spirit that brings you into final salvation. Those are not your works. They are the grace of God at work in you. He takes all the credit for it. He makes you devoted to God through these activities, but these activities are God's work, not yours. You're not, you, you, you enter into salvation because he justifies you. And then he begins to work in you this work of the Spirit. But not only that, we're also prepared for final salvation by trusting in the truth. We trust in the truth. You see that? We're, we're chosen as first fruits for ultimate salvation through the holiness that comes by the Spirit and by faith or belief or trust in the truth. What is the truth? Remember, we talked about this last week. There's a difference between little t truth, those things that are true, and big T truth, the Bible. The scriptures are referred to as the truth that save you. You can open up your manual from your car and you can see how to change the flat tire, and that's true but it will not save you from your sin, right? You say, well, I've never known anybody. Right, because you understand the difference between little t truth, this is true, and big t truth that actually saves you. Trusting the truth, actually believing in the saving truth of God. This is different. This is in contradistinction to those in verse 10. You remember those in verse 10? They are perishing because they did not receive the love that comes from the truth. They would not believe in the saving truth of God. They're perishing. They will face the wrath of God. But those whom God has chosen as first fruits for salvation, they make it into that final salvation because by God's grace they trust in the saving truth of God. And that is God's grace. You see what Paul is saying. You are people of God's choice as an offering of salvation. 
because you're being made holy by the Spirit and you trust in the truth instead of turning against the truth. And so you're going to be a people marked by the era of salvation, not the era of wrath. That's the safety of salvation. So if you're in Christ, you cannot be in the day of the Lord. Because the day of the Lord is a day of wrath and you're a people of salvation. And that salvation produces incredible gratitude to God. It's determined by God. It anticipates the abundance of God as first fruits. It's accomplished by the means of God, the work of the Spirit to produce holiness and faith in the truth. And because those things are true, it makes you safe from the wrath of God. There's two more to look at, and that's next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would begin to open our hearts and eyes to see the truth. And in seeing, to believe. And in believing, to persevere and to have hope. We do have the hope of our salvation, the hope, the confidence that we will be saved. We will not come under the wrath of God. Lord, I pray for any in this room who are unbelieving. And I ask for you to do what you you alone can do. Open their eyes, pull away the scales, show them the glory of Christ, give them a willing heart so that they forsake their sin and they see that Christ has accomplished everything to satisfy your wrath and they come running to you. They believe your word, they see its truthfulness and you give them a heart of love because of the truth. I pray for those who are struggling in their sin, though they believe. Show them they are a people marked by salvation, not wrath, not your disappointment, not your anger, your love, your grace, your salvation. Encourage them, deepen their gratitude Burden our hearts with people that we need to come alongside and express such gratitude to you for salvation. Because we see the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the holiness that is being produced by the Spirit. We see them trusting the truth. Help us to be a voice of encouragement to them to press on. And use this for your honor now. Use this so that we leave this place more devoted to you, trusting in you and confident that we will never face your wrath. We've been saved from it. We are safe from it. Do this work in us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.